good evening to all of you. We are in uh, Acts chapter 20, so if you would, turn over there. And, phone's off. Sue, now don't make me put you in the corner. <laughs> Sue's new. <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't do it. All right, well, the context of chapter 20... Paul has been chased out of, of Ephesus, the end of chapter 19. He's made his way over across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia to visit the churches there, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, made his way down to, to, uh, to Greece, which would be Corinth, the church in Cancrea as well. He's been three months over there, that's what he said. And he writes the letter to the, to the Romans, telling them, I'm coming to see you, but before I get there, I've got to go back to Jerusalem. Why does he have to go back to Jerusalem? What does he have with him? Got money. Got an offering that he's taken from the Gentile churches. He's now going to distribute to the poor and oppressed in Jerusalem. So the Gentile churches are now going to help the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. So he's going to go back to Jerusalem. And then he's going to make his way, at least his plan is, to come back to Rome and then make his way to Spain. Which we don't know if he made it, but that's what he's saying here. That's what's going on in chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Uh, they're gathered together. Um, he had this long sermon, a sermon that begins at, uh, in the evening, goes till midnight. Someone falls out the window and dies. He raises them back to life. And then he finishes his sermon until the, the dawn of day. <laughs> um, long day, long sermon. And then you've got this passage tonight, which is actually quite sad. It's a farewell. Uh, take a look here on the overhead. You can see the map. Here's where Paul is. He's in uh, Miletus. Uh, Ephesus, you can see, is right up here. As the crow flies, it's about 30 miles. But to get there, uh, he's got to, you've got to send a, a runner, some, someone to run, make this route all the way up to Ephesus. Paul doesn't want to go back to Ephesus. He's made his way back here from his travels, and he sends someone over to Ephesus to get the elders, to come back down to Miletus. So it would have been a few days from the time he sent them, uh, the runner to get them, and for them to make their way back. And that's what he'll do. Here's the bigger map over here. Uh, of his travels and where he is. Uh, so we see he started off here. He makes his way up here. Uh, he was in Ephesus for a good while in the last travel. He wants to go back to Jerusalem, but before, before he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to go up here. Here's Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, comes down to, to Corinth, writes the letter to Rome, which is way over here. Uh, and he's going to come to Rome, but he has to go to Jerusalem first. And that's where he's headed. So when we get to verse 17, he has now made his way across the Aegean Sea, and he's, we looked at it last week, he makes his way down these little islands, and he's down here at, uh, uh, at Miletus. And so he's here at Miletus, and he sends a note to come for the Ephesian elders to come talk to him. Quick overview of it, uh, we would see in his three missionary sermons throughout the book of Acts, and his five defenses, he always addresses non-Christians. But this is the the one time in Acts 20, 17 to 38, through the end of this chapter, that he addresses Christians, specifically the elders, also known as pastors and overseers. Uh, and that's what we'll see tonight. The themes that are here, I'll leave this up before we get started. Uh, lots to see in these passages here, 17 to 38. The grace of God. I mean, these are great preaching passages. The kingdom of God, the purpose of God, the redeeming blood of God, uh, the repentance and faith that, that goes with salvation the church of God and its edification, the inevitability of suffering for all Christians, especially those on the front lines of ministry, the danger of false teachers, and the need for vigilance 
in our preaching, running the Christian race and our final inheritance. Verse 17, chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders. Uh, that word for elders in the Greek text is presbyteros. It means old men or older mature men. Uh, the elders, there's always uh, those who oversee the church. They're synonymous. An elder is synonymous with a pastor. Synonymous with uh, uh, presbyteros is obviously where we get the word presbyterian. Uh, Paul is sending for the pastors of the church. Verse 18, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Again, put this in the context of saying goodbye. How many of you like to say goodbye? Uh, people you'll never see again that you love dearly. That, that's what he's doing. People that he loves and that love him. And he's saying goodbye. And he tells them, he's reminding them, here's what I did when I was in Ephesus. My three years there, reminding them of, of who he was, what he did, and what they should do. And I would say this before I get started, is that every pastor, everyone who... who would endeavor or be so bold as to become a pastor, should listen to a sermon from this passage, should make sure that they get what this passage says for them. Uh, I, think that, I think that any pastor should have read the Bible at least 10 times if you're going to endeavor to preach the Bible, to read at least three, you know, three systematic theology books, read something about church history. And of course, all of that is predicated on the fact that you actually know Jesus Christ and can share the simple gospel. Uh, you know how difficult that is for people that call themselves pastors today? It's, it's pathetic how many can't share the gospel, don't know the saving power of Christ, certainly haven't read the Bible ten times, have never read it once. How many, what percentage do you think of pastors that are out there has actually read the Bible cover to cover? Less than, well it's actually less than 20%. 80% have not, never. They don't go to seminaries that teach the Bible. They don't even go to seminaries that believe the Bible. You know how many seminaries there are out, are out there today that believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God? You know what the percentage is? I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm told the last count was there's five. Five. Five left. <laughs> that actually believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. But to go through this and to see how this great missionary, the passion of the Apostle Paul, could teach a pastor a lot. So he says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, that's Ephesus, Asia Minor, how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord, note this, with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So he was there, and it's in every place he went, the Jews were always against him. And we know that Paul is a Jew. So it's his own people that are against him. Of course, the Jews, Jesus' own people, were the ones that had him crucified by the Romans. So this is Paul reminding them. And he was there with humility and tears. Imagine one that's, tr that's crying. There are things that make you cry in ministry with great trials. Uh, verse 20, he says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. That would be in public and in private. And note what he taught them. I didn't, de I didn't, declare, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Do you know how many preachers today avoid that which is difficult in the Bible? Why, why preach something difficult when it's just going to offend people, get you in trouble, and make people leave the church? They'll take their money, their membership. That's not what pastors are after. Paul is saying everything that's profitable. And when we look at Paul's letters, especially what he writes to the Ephesians, later on when he writes that letter, that letter, we see that we've got doctrines like 
the doctrine of election and predestination. Wow, anything that's profitable. He makes it very clear to, to the Corinthians and, to first, and in 1 Timothy about the place of female teachers. These are controversial. They were then, they are now. I don't think they were as bad then as they are now. But Paul said, I, I did everything that was profitable. That's not to make money. But in, that, in this sense, word profitable means beneficial. Uh, I, I went and I was talking to a guy the other day buying a car. And he was saying, so what did you preach this Sunday? Yeah, he, he learned that I was a preacher. He said, our preacher taught me. He named a topic. I said, well, I was in Luke, been in Luke for the last year. I'm just now in chapter 10. And I told him, basically went through my sermon. And he goes, he just looked at me. I mean, he wasn't defiant or anything. He just hadn't heard that before. I said, yeah, Jesus said I saw Satan was falling like lightning. I was watching Satan fall like lightning. Huh? And this man was a believer in Christ. He was a wonderful guy, had a great, I mean, who has a great experience when they're buying a car, right? (laughs) Had a great experience with him. But he said, what kind of preaching is that? I said, it's called expository preaching, verse by verse, line by line. If I leave off at verse 17 one week, I pick up at verse 18 the next week. And I said, that way I never miss anything. And he said, wow, every preacher should be doing that. <laughs> and, the, and the reason, it, what's that? I said, did you amen? <laughs> yeah, I got to amen. Uh, well, I was in Louisiana. I was in New Iberia. It's like four and a half hours away. So <laughs> would have been a long drive. That's a lot to expect. Uh, but he had never heard of that. And I thought... How is it that we live in a world where no one's heard a verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible? And he told me about a topic. I said, you know, the problem with topical teaching is that you can grab any topic you want and then find verses all over the Bible to say, make it say exactly what you want it to say. He said, you're right. Jimmy, there's no question. But when I run across people that can't be here personally, I tell them about this great thing. It's this new thing called Sermon Audio. Yeah, I showed him that, okay, and he looked at it, and he goes, wow, I hadn't, hadn't heard of that. And I said, well, there's a lot of preachers on there, not just me. People around the country watching because you read line by line. Well, and there's a lot of people that don't finish that because I read line by line. <laughs> so the point being is not a pat on the back. It's just really this is what Paul did, and he's teaching ministers, I think everyone, to do the same thing. We don't shrink back. There's a lot of things that could scare us and say, well, I can't preach that. That's going to offend people. No, that's what Paul did. That's what he's telling us. This is what we should do. Verse 21, he was doing it solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's repentance and faith, turning from your sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now verse 22, behold, bound by the Spirit, which is a great passage there because remember when Paul came uh, to, he was going from Jerusalem up to Damascus, he was going to do what? to bind Christians because he hated them. Now this man is bound by the Holy Spirit himself or compelled, some of your translations might say, compelled by the Spirit of God. I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, if you're a preacher and you don't want bonds and afflictions, you don't want people to make fun of you, you don't want to be hurt physically or, or mentally, don't do this. But Paul knows what's going to happen. It's happened everywhere else he's been, and he knows he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but he knows that's going to happen. Verse 24, he says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. 
In other words, my life means nothing to me. I'm not going around trying to save my life, trying to rescue myself. I know I'm going to get beat up. I might get killed. I'm not in it for my life. It's not dear to myself. I, what I want to do is saying, is saying is I want to finish my course. What God gave me to do, I want to finish that. I want to finish what I've done. I want to give the money that I've given, that I've collected. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Spain. I want to give the gospel. I have a race to run. And what does he say at the end of his life? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9, 10. The race I have finished. The faith I have kept. Don't you love that? He knew it, and he knew he was about to die. He was in a dungeon. He's going to have his head chopped off. And he sits back, sleeping peacefully. I did what God sent me to do. This is about... Four to five years from that time period, by the way. Finished the course. The ministry which I received from the Lord. This is what God sent him to do. And what's he doing? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What is Paul doing ultimately? He's telling people with solemn, with dignity, with reverence. Here's what I'm doing. I want you to know the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. You can narrow it all down to that. That's what he's doing. But it's not just a simple little four-point sermon. The gospel of the grace of God is the entire Old Testament pointing to Jesus, taking everything the Old Testament says, showing where Jesus fulfills it, teaching us what to do with it, to repent of our old life, to believe, to walk with Christ. This is what Paul's after. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. So Paul is finished, what we would say, in the East. He's done everything he feels like he should do in the east. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going west. That's his goal. The interesting thing is, um, and you'll see some liberals. I I don't want to take us too far off base here, but in verse 25, Paul did go back to Ephesus. So even though he says in verse 25, you'll no longer see my face, Paul did not know that he would be arrested in Jerusalem, sent to Caesarea for two years, and then make his way to Rome, and then get out of jail, which he did, in around A.D. 62, and then come back because he's writing 1 Timothy saying, I'm coming back to Ephesus. And so some liberals will say, see, uh, it wasn't Paul writing or Paul was lying. He was just telling the, the, the untruth. Well, what they don't factor in is that the book of Acts ends in A.D. 62. Paul's ministry continued after that, and he had a change of plans. Ever had a change of plans? Anyone ever put it to you and said, you said this, but you did that? You are a liar? Well, wait a minute, wait, I just changed my mind. Some, th- something happened, I had to change my plans. Does that make me a liar? I didn't know I wasn't coming back, but then I had a chance to. So anyway, that's what he said. He doesn't think he's going to be back. You'll no longer see my face. Therefore, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. What do you think he means by that? Innocent of the blood of all men. I mean, why bring up that? Look, I've never killed anybody. That's not what he means, is it? He did his job. Do you remember the passage? We could look at in Ezekiel chapter 3 and in Ezekiel 33. God tells Ezekiel the following. He says, Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. 600 BC. And God says, if I tell you to go tell them, if I tell you to go tell the Israelites this, this, and this, and you don't do it, I'm holding you responsible. Their blood is on your head because you didn't tell them what I told you to tell them. Repent. Believe, turn from your sin. But if you tell them what I told you to tell them, whether they obey or not won't matter to you, you will have done what I said to do. That principle no doubt applies today to all preachers. We have been sent to preach an entire Bible, not a bunch of topics, 
Not how to have a happy marriage. I don't see anything in the Bible on how to have a happy marriage. In fact, if you go through the passages that speak of marriage and you talk about the place of a man, place of a woman, no one leaves real happy in the modern world, but quite upset. None of the topics that are taught about typically today that, that bring in the masses are in the Bible, at least, in, at least not in a context. What God is telling, or what Paul is telling these people, is I, I'm innocent of the blood because I went out and told people, you're a sinner. And you're a sinner, and that's the bad news, and the good news is that Christ saves you from your sin. The grace of God, if you will believe on Him, if you will repent of your sins. He's innocent of the blood of all men. I wonder how many preachers could go to bed at night and say, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I have preached the Scriptures. I spent my whole life in ministry going through the text of Scripture, telling people, talking about sin. Um, one of the families in our church, their son went off to school this past year. He uh, was in his second semester, first year. And he came here around the eighth grade. And he wasn't real happy when his, when his family brought him here, eighth grader. Um, and, then he, uh, and then he started to get excited. And he started to enjoy it, and he graduated. And uh, he was telling his parents recently, he said, chapel is just kind of lame. He said, Every, you know, you've got to go to chapel at the Baptist schools, and, which is good. He said, and, and most of the preachers are no, not very good. He said, but there was one recently that talked about heaven and hell and about repenting so that we don't go to hell. And he said, it was, his word is, it was slapping. That's <laughs> what he told me one day. He said, tell, tell Pastor Lance that was slapping. I said, is that a good thing? Is it good to be slapping? And he said, I was so excited. He was telling his dad, I was so excited about the fact that this preacher in chapel had talked about heaven and hell and really preached the gospel. He said, I was talking in class to a girl and she said, oh, I thought it was a bit negative. And I thought, there it is. There it is. It is negative. It's very negative. But was it right? Preaching today in people's minds is supposed to be some kind of an exercise in how to make everyone feel good. That's never in the Bible. The prophets of the Old Testament never had a flowery sermon. They denounced sin over and over. They denounced false teachers and false prophets. Jesus warned of hell for those who did not believe. People today are comforted going straight to hell. Why? Because of the preachers. Paul is saying, I wasn't one of those. The blood of all men, what does he say? Um, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard, verse 28, for yourselves, look out for yourself, and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word for overseer is where we get the word uh, episkopos, or the episcopal church. It's also where we get the word bishop. Previously, it's sent for the elders. Elders are the older men or the mature men who oversee a church. Overseers are the same thing. So the, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. That's where we get the word pastor. So we've got elders, overseers, pastors. They're all one. An elder and a pastor oversee the church. And that's what he says. Make sure you look out for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit that's God, the third person of the, whole, of the Trinity, made you. He made you overseers to shepherd the church of God or pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Note here, it's God that purchased with his own blood. Later on, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, who is it that sheds his blood for the church? It's Christ. Of course, God and Jesus Christ are the same. Verse 29, and, and note that, purchased with his own blood, that's... That's a hefty price to pay. We talk about it being free. It's not free. It's free to us, but it costs Jesus' life. Verse 29, I know 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You know, the, the biggest enemy, the greatest enemy to a sheep is a wolf. And of course, that's in, in literal time, literal, literal wolf, literal sheep. Sheep have no, uh, no natural defense. They have no intelligence whatsoever. They must have a shepherd to oversee, to watch over them. That's why the sheep pastor metaphor, sheep shepherd metaphor in the Bible is so beautiful. Even David speaks about it in Psalm 23. Perhaps the most popular song. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm a sheep. Everything that he does, I'm a sheep, he's saying. He does everything for me. Do you know that a sheep, I'm told by a shepherd, uh, at least I read from a shepherd, that a sheep could be thirsty to the point of death and they can hear water, but they will not go to the water. That a sheep has to be shown the water and his face has to be put down in there. doesn't like his face to be wet. He will die of, of, of thirst unless the shepherd's there to put the water in him. What does the, the shepherd say in Psalm 23? My cup does what? Overflows. Overflows so that the sheep can drink. This is what the shepherd does. This is what Paul is saying. Give them water to drink. Push their head down into it. Force them if you need to. Give them the, the sheep food they desire that they must have to shepherd the church of God. And he says, wolves are going to come in. They're going to attack these sheep. Um, not sparing the flock. Verse 30 And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So they're going to come in from outside. And even some of you, perhaps, he's saying, the elders, you might turn away. Without my influence, Paul is saying, you might turn away. You might be waiting for me to leave so that you can change the doctrine. That's what happens in some churches. You wait for a a particular pastor to leave so that an associate pastor or a deacon or or an elder of some sort can say, okay, now that he's gone, I can get some power here. We don't believe this anymore. We're getting getting rid of this out of the bylaws. We're getting rid of this from the doctrinal statement. Watch out. Watch out. You have to, what is it, Ronald Reagan said, do you think that that freedom is free? Do you think you get it and it's always going to be there? Do you not have to continue to fight for your freedom? Folks, at Harvest Bible Church, we have to continue to fight for right doctrine. Don't think that wolves aren't coming in. I, give, I do everything in my power to give nothing but sheep food because I know goats hate sheep food. They won't hang around long. And you have to be somewhat vigilant. And you can't always be just as, as nice to everyone in the world. Yeah, sure, come on in. Everyone's welcome. Everyone is welcome to come hear the gospel and abide by the rules of this church. But you can't walk around with half clothed. You can't walk around panning, handing out pamphlets to, the, to, the, to the, the parade down the street of the, the drag queens. You can't do that. We oversee that. We make certain that doesn't happen. Uh, we have to be vigilant about it. What Paul said was true then is true now. Not only people from the outside coming in, but people from within. Not sparing the flock. Speaking perverse things or perverted, twisted things. To do what? To draw away the disciples after them. And that's what sheep do. Um, I'm reading a a book as I read regularly. I read books on sheep and shepherds. Uh, They're always very interesting. though. I mean, I'm a pastor. There's one particular man who spent a year uh, among Bedouins in in the Middle East with shepherds and watching them deal with their sheep and then making observations on how it relates to being a pastor. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it's a beautiful book, and it's like a 40-day exercise to go through and, and focus in on 40 topics as it relates to being a pastor, sheep to shepherd. And it's amazing how, um, how dumb sheep are. I was showing Cheryl the other day, I was watching a YouTube video of, of it's called Stupid Sheep. 
and, and all these sheep are in this sheep pen, and, and, and the, the shepherd opens a door. It's just a door about the size of a, your regular door, not just a, one of those doors. And the sheep all bottleneck it. And they're all stuck. And one will slip out from time to time, and it'll make the, and they're all stuck again. They're all, and they, the shepherd's just back there laughing. I mean, they're just so dumb, they don't get it. Um, another one goes out into a field, all of his sheep are scattered, and he starts yelling for them. And what does John 10 say? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And you can hear them, you can hear the, 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 blot, the bleeding in the distance. And they come back and they surround their shepherd. Just his voice. Not all the sheep, but his sheep. Um, in this regard, it's not sparing the flock. Uh, you can tell sheep anything sometimes. It, and, 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 and I mean that in, in regard to the church. If you don't know Scripture, and someone with some bit of authority, maybe a nice-looking man, that would be unlike me, tall, dark, handsome dude that comes up, played football, and, and uh, knows how to, to um, bring in the, the attention of an audience, could come in, and with, with his command of an audience, could come in and say anything, and people are just mesmerized by it. Wow, that must be true. He went to this school. He's got that alphabet soup after his name. What he said, we've got to listen to him. Lance never told us that. Watch out. Make sure you know the scripture enough to be able to say, that's not right. I don't care who said it and how beautiful or eye candy he is. That's not right. That's what he says in verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. That's for all of us. Be alert to what I say to what Biff says, to what Doug says, to what any guest speaker says, be on the alert, be vigilant, looking it up in Scripture, making certain that what's being said is true, remembering, Paul says, that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. The word of His grace, note this, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of grace, note that again, the word of God's grace, that's God's word itself. It is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That inheritance, that final glory. And, uh, you know, we're co-heirs with Christ in heaven. Co-heirs. Not under Him, co-heirs with Him. Among all those who are sanctified or made holy. That's what the word means. Paul says in verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. In other words, you know that I've not done uh, anything whereby my, my reputation among you is tarnished. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I actually believe that because Paul talks about coveting, he talks about coveting two or three times, I think that was Paul's difficult one. I think that that was the, the sin that Paul probably struggled with the most. Town to town, people to people, noticed people living in nice, happy lives. They had a wife, he had no wife. They had children, he had no children. They had a place to sleep, he had no place to sleep. They had wealth, he had no wealth. My guess is that Paul went places and he had to catch himself. I'm not going to look off and see these people and covet what they have. He even says in Romans 7, when he's talking about the things he struggles with, he brings up coveting again. So by just bringing this one up, he doesn't say uh, anything other than I've coveted no one's silver or gold. I think he's saying, I conquered my own sin. Whatever it is that was weak to me, I didn't give in to it. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered. And he would have raised those hands up, these hands. Now I want you to note, he's not necessarily talking about these hands per se. How many of you remember what a synecdoche is? Synecdoche. I love that word. It's a figure of speech. It speaks of the part for the whole. When he's talking about his hands, he's talking about his life. You know the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says, I tell the men everywhere to lift up holy hands. What's a holy hand? 
I know what a hand is. What's a holy hand? Are they clean? Are they disinfected? Uh, do they have rubber gloves on them? Do they have ivory liquid on them? Holy hands is a, is a metaphor, a synecdoche for a holy life. Let the men in the church raise up their lives before God, their innocence. What your hands are clean of. If you've been out cleaning the, or working in the, in the, uh, in the fields, your hands are going to be dirty. Your fingernails are going to be filthy. It's indicative of you being a hard worker. And Paul is saying, my hands, my life, uh, show these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. I worked with my hands, he's saying, and my life is without stain. And you know it is what he's saying. Verse 35, and everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Can any of you go into the Gospels and find me where that says it? Where Jesus ever said that? You know that's not in the Gospels. We have no record of Jesus ever saying this. It just goes to show that Jesus said many things that the Gospel writers didn't record that he actually said. And Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I've heard that spoken in, in the church where I grew up. This is the one that you do when you're going to do a capital campaign. And you want to bring in the money. It has nothing to do with this context. Paul is not using this passage to say, bring in more money. He's essentially talking about sacrifice, the generous sacrifice of my life. As Jesus said, it's, more, it's better to give than to receive. And Paul is saying, that's exactly what I did. I didn't come to you to receive anything. I didn't come to you to live in a nice parsonage. I didn't come to you and get a big salary from you Ephesians. I came to give you my life and give you the gospel. And as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's what he's saying. I gave to you far more than I received. In verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Imagine that scene. This is a pastor who spoke to them. He gave them his life. He spoke to them controversial things. He had many enemies. But among the elders, among those who loved him, they did love him. It's an appreciation for the pastor that gave them God's word, prayed for them, looked out over them. What he did for them, he's admonishing them to do for that church. Now let's take a look just at some, some overview issues on this as it relates to the passage. And this is what Paul is essentially saying, how a, a pastor is to conduct himself. Uh, he says, that, you know, I, I gave you, I was with you night and day, full-time service to the Lord. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't be a part-time pastor. Many pastors, uh, they're, they're bivocational. They do what they can. The church can't pay them much, so they have to have another job. I'm not saying that you can't do that. That happens all the time. A lot of churches can't pay. But there is no part-time ministry. You don't turn it off. There's no clock that we clock in on. Uh, there's no weekends off. There's no vacations in the sense. It's always there. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's what a shepherd does. And that's one of the things you learn about shepherds, literal shepherds. They don't take vacations. That is their life. Tending and watching those sheep. When they hire someone, Jesus brings up a hireling. And what a hireling does in chapter 10 of John chapter 10, he says a hireling, uh, when, a, when a wolf comes in, jumps ship. Way back when we had some problems here at the church, uh, one of the ladies in our church, actually three of the ladies, three some very influential ladies, uh, who are not necessarily friends. I don't think they even conspired to, to write me these notes. But one of them, all three of them said, you're not going to jump ship. You're not that false shepherd at our church where you're going to leave, are you? And this is right after I decided to resign from the church. I had my resignation letter. I felt pretty good about it. That's what God wanted me to do. 
I didn't really know what else to do. And I came out, and I had even prayed with one of the pastors that uh, was a good buddy of mine. Uh, some of you know him. His name's Troy Stewart. Troy and I had gotten together. I came back uh, and uh, woke up to that email, to those three emails. She said, you're not going to leave, are you? That's not what you're going to You're not a false shepherd. God put you here. Did he tell you to leave? Did you do anything wrong to have to leave? No, no. Then stay. Okay. His service is full-time. It's to the Lord. It's not to anything other than doing it to the Lord. He's a humble servant, not lording it over others. Verse 19, all this is from verse 19. When, he, when, Jesus, when, uh, when Paul is saying there in verse 19, he says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Humble servant. Not lording power over others. That's uh, where we get this, the phrase, phraseology of calling what's a pastor a pastor. I'm not the CEO of the church. I'm not your boss. I don't tell you what to do. I am a servant leader. I'm a leader in the church, and I lead by serving the church. It's not my church. It's it's not mine. It's God's church. I'm here to serve this church, uh, and that's what a humble servant is. I've learned that through the years, and I continue to learn it for that matter. Not lording his power over others. Here's what we do. If you don't do it my way, it's the highway for you. No, that's not the way it works. Paul's an elder or presbyter. As I said earlier, he's a mature man. He's an overseer bishop. Uh, the episcopos, that's one who protects. So he's not only a mature man, he's one who protects. He's also a pastor, a shepherd who feeds. That's what we do. It's pretty broad in the Bible. In fact, the qualifications for an elder uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 gives, gives moral qualifications, but it doesn't necessarily say what we do. Uh, what do we do? What does a pastor do with his time? Some of you would love to ask me that. What do you do? Barry Richards thinks that I work one day a week, one day a week. And he says, you don't need any money, you work one day a week. Uh, yeah, to, to him, to small minds like him, that's what I do. It's, it's one who protects, one who feeds, loves the people. I remember right after I graduated, I bumped into one of the, the um, professors there at school, and he was congratulating me. He said, Lance, just remember, he said, preach the word and love the people. Preach the word and love the people. That's what it is. Preach God's word and love God's people. That's what Paul is telling us to do. His service is with tears and trials, done in the midst of persecution. Tears and trials, tears and trials. Uh, He may avoid all the pitfalls of pastoral ministry, like pride and sexual immorality, greed, stealing from the church, but he will never avoid unfair criticism. It will always be there. Deal with it. You can moan and bellyache and whine, oh, I worked real hard, and why are people making fun of me? They're going to. You're going to get into this. That's what happens. You can't avoid it, nor should you try. His preaching is biblical. It's bold, laborious, and thorough. Preaching the whole counsel of God. Jesus said in his great commission, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, no better, come on, help me out, Brock, teach them to obey all that I have said. Which would include the commandments. All that I have said. There's a lot that Jesus has said. and It's not just in the Gospels. That's why you've got to come to church every week, sometimes twice a week. Join a small group. There's a lot to know. Are you interested? I'm amazed that people come once, twice a week, twice a month, I should say. And, uh, and somehow worship to them is watching a pastor on TV, gathering together, sitting together, watching that person in front of you trying to undo this piece of candy, and they're trying to be real, real quiet about it. It just keeps right. And you want to look up to them and say, just open it already. Or someone in front of you and they're drawing on the other one's back. Or some kid that leaks you up and looks at you. That's church. That's the way it is, right? Can't get over that. Someone who's nodding off, starts snoring, that's church. 
Uh, It's not sitting at home with your cup of coffee in the paper going in and out of attention and going, I went to church today. Uh, Church is conducted both in public assembly and private meetings. As Paul said, I did it out there, I did it in here, house to house and in public. It's always about the kingdom of God. It's emphatically preaching to all both repentance and faith. That's turning away from sin to God, trusting in Christ. Repentance and faith go together. The foundation message upon which everything else in Christian theology and practice is built upon. Repentance and faith. It's about following the Spirit's leading, expecting persecution. Now the Spirit's leading, this is the Spirit of the God. Spirit of God wrote this word. The Spirit of God wrote this word. This is the first act of knowing what the Spirit said is reading His word. So when you read his word, then you go about the task of what should I do with that word? How is the spirit leading me based upon what the spirit says? This is what's following the spirit, following the spirit's leading. It's what Paul admonishes them to do in verses 22 and 23. He knows his sufferings are never over. You ever suffered and you think, okay, I've done my suffering. I've paid my dues. Now I'm good for a while. Paul didn't think that. I would love to think that for myself. Paul didn't think that. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen. He later learns what's going to happen. And he had been beaten, battered, bruised, left for dead in Acts 14, early in his ministry, and all that's in front of him, all the arrests and the beatings, it's all awaiting him in the future. He didn't know it at this point. He dies before he enters ministry, so death doesn't scare him. I wrote that because I read a story one time of a a missionary who was going into uh, these islands that were cannibalistic. And uh, one of the men uh, on the neighboring island said, you're crazy. You're going to go in there and get killed. He said, I'm not worried. I already died. I've already died. I'm going in to give the gospel. Isn't that great? I've already died. I'm died to myself. And if I go in there and die, so be it. I've already died. He dies before he enters ministry. So death does not and will not scare him. Viewing himself with humility, looking only to finish his race, never failing to testify to the truth of the gospel. I uh, got a race to finish. You know, I'm a pastor. I, I would love to go to be with Jesus tomorrow. I have no fear of death in that regard, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to live another 40 years, which makes me 94 when it's all over. Oof. But if, if that's the way he wants it, I'm going to keep doing it. I got a race to run. I'm going to run it. I'm going to stay in it. Uh, keep my nose clean. That's what I want to do. One day I'm going to face God, as are you. You got a race. What is it? You a mother, father, provider, teacher? Whatever it is you are, whoever it is you are, none of us are better than another. God has given you a task. Run the race. Run it faithfully so that when you're done, you can say, I ran my race. I finished it and I kept the faith. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he rests peacefully at night being innocent of the blood of all men. Yes, I come home, I will tell you, I come home from preaching some sermons and and I am downright depressed. Oftentimes, actually. Um, I, I know how harsh the text of Scripture can be, especially when you're in Pauline letters. I know, I know my audience. I see people's reactions to me. I know that some people loathe Lance Waldy. I know it. They, lo- they would like the same message through another person. I get that. That's the way it is with every preacher. I get, I don't like that. It hurts my feeling. <laughs> I've got to, at least. It does. It hurts. And I, I've come home before. Oh, no, that's, that's just, that's going to... These people are never coming back. These people loathe me already. I watch, I've watched people get up, slam their Bible, about face, leave, never talk to them again. They say the foulest things. But you know, I go to bed and I know, and I said, Lord, I gave them your word. I did it out of love. 
I have no agenda other than to give them your word. I can at least go to bed at night knowing I'm innocent of the blood of all men and women. At least I hope so. Um, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. That doesn't mean I've, I've never preached a word and, and had an agenda outside of God's agenda. I have. I have preached before to try to uh, fill in the blank. Just not hurt people, but I, I'm, st- I'm preaching at someone. And I want them to hear it. That doesn't mean that's wrong, but I could have done it better, that's for sure. God knows I could do many things better in hindsight. Though many seek to intimidate him, as they did Paul, he never backs down by failing to preach the truth. You cannot be in ministry and be afraid of people. People are going to hurt you. Uh, Maybe physically. You can't back down. You cannot. If I got the opportunity to preach in Joel Osteen's church, we're going to get a Bible sermon. And I may get killed before I come out, but they're going to hear it. God bless them. How many of you watch, you ever watch Ray Comfort videos on YouTube? I love to watch them. Uh, They're great. Well, there was one, I don't know, a couple months ago, and there's a video, Ray has a video of this pastor, and he is at the pulpit, and he is railing against Ray Comfort. He is going, he is so angry. He's a young guy, and he's talking about how there is nowhere in the Bible that says you need to repent nowhere and this he's saying this he is so angry ray comfort says you need to repent and believe it's nowhere in the bible and and ray's got this video where it's he hears him he's got that got a clip for the pastor and then he just suddenly has a little passage that says repent and believe and he probably puts six or eight passages on there and and you're thinking this guy has clearly never read the bible but he is also clearly convinced it's not there so should we repent? And I make, the, I make a big deal because there are some people today who will say, no, repentance is not necessary. That's a work on man's part. But folks, if you repent from your, of your sin and you turn away from sin and receive Christ, that's all to the glory of God. I mean, just a couple of passages. Peter said to them, Acts 2.38, repent, each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Granted, God gave the repentance. Acts 26, 20, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You know, if you repent, uh, your repentance, if you turn away from your sin, then your deeds will be in keeping with that repentance. Anyone can say I turn away. I, I've, I'm going to stop drinking and getting drunk. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. But if you got to drink and get drunk again, did you repent? You just said it. It's deeds in keeping with the repentance. Jesus says, it says from that day in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus speaking. Uh, Luke 24.47, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. That's Jesus' commission. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance. Changing our minds about our sin, our way of life. Acts 3.19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's Peter speaking. In Acts 5.31, He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see that repentance is right there with, with forgiveness. Now, in no way am I saying, okay, you need to go repent out of your own fleshly heart and then God will forgive you. Here's the beauty of it. 
you decide to repent, it's because God regenerated you to repent. And that's how you're known as a transformed believer. You've repented. You didn't just believe. I believe. I'm in. And if I believe and I'm in and now God loves me, I can do whatever I want, as many people say. It's preached throughout. People think they can do whatever they want. Say, well, God is love. He loves me. He loves everybody. No. No, the Bible doesn't say that. God shows love to all and shows grace to all. But God's special love is for his elect, for those whom he draws, those whom he gives repentance to, and those whom he saves. That they're all one group. So yes, we have to repent. Repentance is part of what it means to be saved. You know people that you think, you know, they say this, but they live their life this way. And you wonder. You don't want to judge them. But it's already, it's already in your head. You're thinking, but are they? And you think, I don't want to be a you know, spiritual fruit inspector. But you already are. You might as well admit it. Just say, okay. It's not judgment. It's just common sense. And you might even ask them about it. You know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about this. And you, you probably say, well, I'm not perfect either, but I'm convicted by my sin. I'm wondering why you're not. <laughs> How can you live like this and, uh, and call yourself a Christian? It makes us all look bad, doesn't it? That's why Christians are typically known as a bunch of hypocrites. So when you look into the future of ministry, as Paul says, as overseers, uh, pastors are to be on the alert for both themselves and the flock. Um, it is my job to, to know you as best I can without being nosy. Uh, it's my job to, to watch over you. It's my job to, to uh, and that, you know, that makes it look like I'm your daddy, doesn't it? You know, that, that some young guy, especially if you're older than me, you're thinking, ah, I don't need him looking out for me, and you don't. I have a job to do to oversee, to make sure there are no wolves within the church, to make sure there are no false teachers in the church. We come together. It's not just me. It's my staff. It's the elders and deacons. We come together. We oversee. We care for this church. Uh, we care for you. We pray for you. We may not always know what to pray for you, but we know God knows what you need. And so we do that. That's how we oversee. And sometimes we have to say, you know what? You can't do that. I'm sorry. You, what you're doing is unacceptable. That never goes over well, but that's part of what we do. Being on the alert. Uh, we have been tasked with protecting and feeding those for whom God purchased with his own blood. Feeding and warning. I look at you. My wife told me one time and she said, do you consider me one of your sheep? And she gave me a little, I should have brought it in, it's a figurine of a sheep. So I've got a, a little figurine of a sheep. It's very manly in my office, a sheep. And when, whenever she wants to be seen as a sheep, she goes, bah. <laughs> but it was a great question. She's not just my wife, she's also a sheep. She is not my sheep. She is one for whom Christ died. And although she's my wife, I don't let my hair down around her in the sense that I'm no longer a pastor. I'm still her pastor. She gave me, for Valentine's Day, she gave me a picture of sheep that she thought was, were cute. And they are beautiful. And she said something among being her husband, but also for being my pastor. Which is very dear to me. And she said, you don't have to put it in your office. She said, I'll guarantee it's going to my office. That, that means everything to me that she, who knows me more than anyone here, would call me her pastor. She was... Uh, God died for her as God died for you. Have you ever given your kids to a babysitter? You, you leave your children with a babysitter, you know, the, the things you love the most are with some kid with blue hair and, and piercings everywhere. <laughs> They're in charge of your babies. Some of you have never done it because you, the risks are too great. God is the same way. God is, you are his people. You don't belong to me, but he has tasked me with loving you as his children. Lance, feed my sheep. What did he ask Peter? Three times. 
Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Of course I love you. Be real nice to everybody, Pete. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Shepherd my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. That is how I know as a pastor. I love Jesus is by feeding his sheep. You, to me, are are Jesus' flock. I am part of that flock as well. We love each other. That's how we love Jesus. God loves us through each other. That's how he gives us certain things. We've been tasked with protecting those for whom Christ, God purchased. That's what he says. God purchased it with his own blood. That's who Jesus is. Pastors are to prepare the sheep for wolves. In Ephesus, they failed to heed such warnings. We know that because Ephesus became a false teaching church. First church John addresses, that Jesus addresses in the, in the apocalypse of John. Uh, church in Ephesus. You got your doctrine right, people, but what did you lose? Your love. Your love is cold as ice. There can be no doctrine without love. God's doctrine is full of love. If you're teaching doctrine without love, there's no doctrine there. They lost their first love. Paul was their pastor. Timothy was their pastor. John was their pastor. And then they lost it. And just what Paul said happened. Wolves came within. They got too doctrinal and they lost their love. Pastors prepare the sheep for wolves. Not everyone likes that. Not everyone likes it. Why are you talking about false teachers again? Why are you always talking about wolves? You know, Jesus is always doing that. The writers of the epistles are always doing that. We want to hear something warm fuzzy. I'm sorry, that's the next passage here in the the text. The warnings. Wolves enter Christ's church from both the inside and the outside. They're known for the perverse things they speak. Vigilance is always the price of liberty, so stay alert. As I said earlier, the only way to keep this church pure, the only way to keep your church pure if you don't go to this church, is to make certain that your pastor knows the truth, is preaching the truth. There are people that come in. I mean, there are folks that will come into this church and somebody, some of you will say, I know this guy, I used to go to church with him. Don't you dare let him teach. I've had others in the church say, Lance, this person is a nice guy. Don't ever let him in, in leadership. Don't this, don't that. We know each other. It's not always fair necessarily. You might just have a beef with someone, but we're looking out for the church. We have to be vigilant. In our country, United States of America, we're watching our freedoms go out the window. Our leaders think that they're a bunch of dictators now. They can tell us to wear masks. They can tell us what to do, what not to do. We can't get gas-burning fires anymore. You can't get gas-powered vehicles anymore. They're tell- they think they can tell us what to do. If we keep allowing them to tell us what to do, we will lose the freedom in our country. The same is true in the church. We have to be vigilant. We have to fight for the doctrine that we love. We have to fight for the purity that we have. This church is very pure right now. We have to fight for it. We can't sit back and just let it happen. Anything can happen. I mean, this is the breeding ground. This is our church as our many churches. We are the evangelistic field for Satan's emissaries. This is where they come. Satanists don't look like strange people. Some do. But some Christians look strange too. They come in, they look like us. They act like us. They come in, they spread a few rumors. They drop a few lines here and there. They make trouble. Be vigilant. Know people. There's too many people that many of you have never met. You don't even know who they are. You don't know enough about them to even watch over them. Go meet them. Ask them, what are you doing here? No, don't do that. Don't don't do that. That'd be a little much. And then the attitude of giving to the sheep always takes priority over being supported by the sheep, as Paul quotes Jesus. 
So finally, I just sum it up there. What Paul teaches ministers of the gospel, this is just something for me, uh, but I'll share with you, not to boast in what you do, but to provide an example of how to act. Here's what I do. No, it's not that. It's Paul, without the scriptures, and they didn't have a New Testament, Paul provided them an example of how a man, how a pastor is to act. And he gave them a wonderful example. Not to isolate ourselves from the flock, but to invest our lives in the flock. My job is to study. My job is to prepare, to prepare a meal. Meals take time. It takes a lot of time to prepare that meal. Cheryl asked me this morning, she said, Becky's sick. Can you come teach the women's group tomorrow? Okay, I'll do that. I got to catch up on the Day of Atonement and Hebrews chapter 9 and get it together, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to do that. that that's invest my life in. No, I got to study. I'm going to sit back in my office. Y'all leave me alone. No, uh, it's another chance I get to be with the, with the ladies, which is... Uh, Always a blessing. Let's keep it that way, shall we? <laughs> Don't seek for the compliment, the compliment of what a great speaker he is. But what Paul did, we want the church to say what a great redeemer Jesus is. No pastor should be up there to try to promote himself. Yeah, I'm a better preacher. You know, I've told the story before because I always love the story of the pastor. He's driving home with his wife. and He was apparently pretty enamored with his sermon. And he said, uh, uh, man, you know, I'm a great, uh, uh, the expository preaching is the way to go. And he said, I noticed my wife was very, very quiet. And he said, how many, expo- how many really good expositors do you think there are left? And she said, probably one less than you think. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's a guy trying for his wife to say, man, you're one of the greats. That's not the goal. It's not to be called a great teacher. It's not even to be remembered. But what a great redeemer Jesus is. That's what's to be heard through God's teachers. The minister is not just to be a servant of the church where he serves. This is not the only place to serve. It's inside, outside, everywhere, wherever we go. I got the opportunity, like I said, on Monday to minister to a car dealership in New Iberia, Louisiana. That was pretty good. I don't, I don't often get outside chances. I'm normally here. Preacher warns of danger, giving the whole counsel of God. And growth is not to be measured in numbers in a church. I wish we could teach pastors that. Or even people that ask. Because people always ask, when, when they're not sure about your church, they ask what? How big is your church? How many people go there? Tell me, what difference does that make? I mean, don't, don't, doesn't a, a, a boastful pastor want to say 9,000 people? Our church is 10,000 people. We have three worship services. I'd love to say that. Uh, but God said, no, 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 no. How many people come? Who cares? The better question is, of the people that come to your church, how equipped are they to serve in ministry? Isn't that really? I don't want to be self-righteous or anything because I've got the better answer. I understand people want to know how big a church is, how many people go there. That's a decent question, but it's not what matters. The biggest churches on this planet are the worst. And those little churches you never heard of, you never heard of the pastors, typically the ones preaching the gospel because so few actually want to hear it. Growth is to be measured not in numbers, but in the church's sanctification. All right, well, our time is up. Let me pray for you. Lord, this passage uh, certainly speaks to me as a pastor, but it speaks to all Christians. And I pray that we would all be convicted. We would all take part in the, the service of your church, the oversight of your church, that we would be alert. The, the danger, the evil that lurks is everywhere. Uh, the people that come out of seminaries and Bible colleges today are, are to be feared. I pray that, that you would uh, 
Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, that we would know it, we would want it. If we don't want it right now, I pray that we would pray, that we would ask you to give us the desire to want it. We want to want you. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would be filled, that we ourselves could be part of this battle. I pray that we would fight for it, knowing that you're on the throne, you're in charge, you are sovereign. May we be part of the solution, not the problem. And may we give honor and glory to you in everything that we do, running our race, looking forward to that finish line, wherever, whenever it may be. And Lord, in light of that request, we pray together, come Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 